everyone. Today we cover one of my all-time favorite book series. Book one, The Little Prince, follows an innocent, curious little boy as he wanders the universe. Book two, The Prince by Machiavelli, shows him grow up to be a ruthless tyrant. We hope you like it. And this is The Book File, a comedy podcast about the best of books and the worst of books. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father... And the entire time I was preparing this episode of the podcast, I could not get that Spin Doctors song out of my head. Wait, which song? Their only song. For those who know who they are, it'll it'll hit. Ha ha, yes, I get the reference. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. I think of both of these books as love stories, either about love for a rose on an asteroid or for absolute power. (laughs) All right, as usual, feel free to subscribe to the podcast so you don't have to download it manually every week, and give us a review. Here's a great five-star review from this week. The Lava City says, oh man, I'm so sorry. (laughs) We feel for your people. (laughs) Is that the the place where it it hit all you guys so hard that you were frozen to ash in an instant? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the mean term that the neighbors used for Pompeii. <laughs> this one person escaped, and the town that he made his new home, all his neighbors are like, oh, look at Lava City over there. <laughs> Guys. <laughs> What's your relationship like with your family? Would you say they're your rock? <laughs> Sorry I don't erupt into smiles every time you show up. (laughs) Lava City writes, This podcast is funny and covers a wide variety of books, but it also contains some significant spoilers for U.S. history. Hint, don't get too attached to JFK. Speaking of presidential assassinations, if you want to see me live like Lincoln enjoyed the theater, come see me at a local comedy club near you. I'll be in West Jordan, Utah, July 21st to the 22nd, then Ramona, California, August 12th, then I'll be in Pleasanton, California, October 13th. And then, of course, Des Moines, Iowa, have not forgotten you. I'll be there December 9th through the 10th. Get all your tickets at kellenerskin.com. How funny would it be if we get all the podcast fans to road trip to Des Moines for this show? <laughs> my first five minutes in Des Moines, I'm just trying to make local Des Moines jokes to get the crowd on my side. <laughs> <Nothing> thing hits. <laughs> I want to see... What is the farthest that a fan will travel for the Des Moines show? (laughs) Well, probably me. (laughs) All right. So this book series, one thing I love about this series, the tone of the two books is so different that it's almost like they're not even connected. So book one, The Little Prince, I love because it's about childlike sense of wonder and adventure and humor. And book two, The Prince, is probably the first book I ever read that is just an instruction manual for being evil. It's like a reverse book of scripture. But if you enjoy shows like Succession that are all about power, you may be intrigued by this book, or it may help you if you're trying to become local manager at Petco. Like book two, it's dark and it's sad, but I think the little dictator inside all of us is maybe a tiny bit intrigued. 
Right, Kellen? Did you feel that way, <laughs> Kellen? I was just kidding. No one felt that way. I was just thinking of this uh, monarch running Petco. <laughs> no one even thinks of robbing the place because as they're walking in, it's just goldfish heads and shoplifters heads on spikes. <laughs> Do you ever feel like the smaller amount of power a person holds, the more of a dictator they become? Oh, man. <laughs> I've been an employee of more than one small business, uh, so yes. <laughs> I had junior high teachers where I was like, I hope you are never on a throne. <laughs> Well, as you know, Dave, uh, with Harry Potter, I stopped at book six with my nine-year-old. But with this Prince series, I had to stop after book one. <laughs> because at least Harry Potter makes a very gradual turn to darkness, right? And book two, Ginny right. is hypnotized. Book three, Ron is unconscious. The first death of a student doesn't happen until book four. And then it's not till book five that we get the first death of a godfather. But with today's books... <laughs> Book one is full of little adventures on tiny planets and simple wisdom. Then in book two, he's immediately like, now it's okay to kill a few people as long as the masses are on your side. <laughs> it really is a crazy character arc. <laughs> but seriously, I, I thought that the little... Prince was a, a bit of a bizarre story. I'm, I'm sure that if people read it as a kid, then they still love it as adults. Uh, but I did have a bit of a tough time with the logic. Not that kids' books <laughs> sure. need to make sense, but I feel like even Dr. Seuss has a few rules around his logic. And I was never quite sure what that was in this book. Um, but that being said, it's still a sweet story, and it packs some surprisingly powerful insights to the human condition. Yeah. The prince, on the other hand, and I read it as a bystander, by the way, not a a fan like Dave. It's just crazy <laughs> how confident he is. And I wouldn't even say amoral. I would say zero morals because it's like it's like he believes that the only true virtue is power. Sure. Like when he brings up rulers who are known for kindness and then lost their kingdoms, he's like, well, a lot of good it did them. <laughs> I have a point that gets into this further, but I feel like one of the biggest problems to solve in governance is that to make a good society, you need power. And to have power, you usually need to do bad things. <laughs> and so there's this like weird convolution where how do you be a good ruler where often if you're too good you lose power or if you want to hang on to power you have to become bad <laughs> i feel like that is the recurring problem of human history and i feel like it goes all the way from government down to family reunions my wife and i were talking about this how there's always like you can either be the one who finally tacks down a plan, this is what we're doing today. <laughs> you're either that person or you're all the other people who are just complaining about what they have to do all day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the person who offers no initial plans, but then once plans are made by that person, I stage a coup. <laughs> 
All right, Kellen and my next two books will be A Roast of Jaws and Humans of New York. All right, and without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from The Little Prince and The Prince. Lesson one, expand the fourth wall. I loved book one as a kid, (laughs) The Little Prince. And since I'm working on kids' books right now, I want to figure out why I loved it. And I think a big part of it is how he handles the fourth wall. So we've all seen fourth wall breaks. A a big example is Deadpool, where Deadpool is always talking to camera and basically acknowledging like, hey, you and I both know this is a movie. It's very fun. It's very funny. That's why Kellen and I break the fourth wall by, after every joke, reminding you that life is full of sorrow. (laughs) But I've realized I also love the opposite, where someone expands the fourth wall, where they look right at you and basically say, you and I both know this is very real. Hmm. It's a great move for creating a book or a cult. So for like a third of this book, he's just explaining to you how he came to write it. So he gets in a plane crash, he meets this boy in the desert, and he's gradually finding out the kid's backstory. And reading that as a kid was so magic Hmm. to me. It's like how Lemony Snicket always insists every part of it is true. Mm -hmm. Or in The Princess Bride, Goldman is pretending like he's abridging a real book to the point that people on Amazon get pissed off because they think they accidentally bought the abridged version. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I think this goes beyond books. Like the biggest example of expanding the fourth wall, I think, is Disneyland. Because you get there as a kid and your favorite characters are physically real. Mm. They can like hug you and meet you. Or if you don't like Disneyland, you can go to Chuck E. Cheese if you want to play with a terrifying rat. (laughs) (laughs) Like what if instead of Mickey and Minnie, you got to hang out with an abomination? (laughs) Anyway, I, I feel like part of what made Harry Potter magic was as a kid, you couldn't disprove that it was true. Like, you knew it probably wasn't, Mm -hmm. but are you positive? (laughs) Anyway, I I love that you can break a fourth wall in a way that makes the story not less real, but more real. All right. Lesson two, creating a powerful impact doesn't mean you have to spell it out. So at one point, the little prince is on a little planet with a guy who needs to be liked. And at first I was like, wait, do I live on a little planet? (laughs) He's called the vain man. And the vain man says, do you really admire me a great deal? And the little prince says, I admire you, but what is it about my admiration that interests you so much? (laughs) And I was in an airport when I heard this part of the book, and I just said out loud, okay, I get it. But how powerful is this in teaching what, like, I could go on for paragraphs now about this principle of it shouldn't matter, you know, what other people think and what is it you're hoping to gain and it's insatiable. But I feel like The Little Prince covers all of that with the least condescending tone. Yeah, He just walks away and says, adults are so strange. (laughs) He's not even aware of, like, the gut punch that he gave this guy just before dropping the mic and walking off planet. (laughs) And, I mean, I intellectually know how much happier we would all be if we let go of, like, the need for admiration. Mm -hmm. But I can't escape the fact that every time I hear that message, it's in a book that is now written by a best-selling author. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's a true message that can only reach you from people who are now incredibly successful. (laughs) Oh, for sure. There's a certain irony to people who post or repost quotes like this on social media and then go back every five minutes to see how many likes it's gotten. (laughs) Yeah. Or you'll see it from characters in fiction books where they're like, I don't need fame. I don't need everyone to know my name. But it's like, but thousands of people are reading your story. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the difference is, and I'm only half joking here, I feel like gathering other people's admiration is healthier if you're just out there to monetize it. If it's purely cynical rather than emotionally unhealthy, that's the sweet spot. (laughs) But I say half kidding because honestly, the stuff I post to social media, it is stand-up clips of me and I want people to like it. But I also just, I want people to like to come to my shows. You know what I mean? It's not like my intrinsic like feeling of of well-being is exclusive Uh, to the heart tallies on Instagram. Sure. (laughs) And I'm not saying this as like an absolute thing. Like other people's opinion of you is not everything, but it's also not nothing. Yeah. (laughs) And somewhere in there, somewhere in the middle ground is like a healthier place to be than where I'm currently at. (laughs) I think a better way uh, for me to say it is that I, I do think that in art, it is important that you only express yourself in a way that pleases you and feels hmm. true, and then be grateful for the people who it it does touch. Like that's that's how I approach my jokes at this point. I've talked to, about how when I started comedy, I just wrote jokes for like this will make people laugh, and then eventually got to a yeah. place where I am now, where it's more this makes me laugh. So in that case, it's less that I want everyone to like me, and it's more like. I hope that the people who will like this joke will be able to find me. Ah, yeah. I think my thought process is similar where I'm like, I hope the people who like my work will be able to find it. And I know they will because those people are everyone in the world. (laughs) Are we saying the same thing? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So that in the next book, the prince, this little prince grows up and I think to further this creed of not worrying about what others think of you. Uh, He says, quote, when conquering, take note that a prince should never make an alliance with one more powerful than himself. Princes ought to avoid being at the discretion of anyone. And not a lot of detail follows, but we get the point, that dark, dark point. And combining the wisdom of these two books, the message becomes clear, Dave. Don't worry about what others think of you unless they own an army that is smaller than yours so that you can become friends because you'll still have the upper hand. (laughs) Yeah, the books really do have the opposite message, don't they? (laughs) The little prince is like, don't worry what they think about you. And the prince is like, worry what they think about you all the time. (laughs) And I, I would add it's, Worry about what people think of you, specifically the ones who could alter the balance of power out of your favor. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
And speaking of succession, there's so many parts of this book that reminded me of it, including <laughs> including part of one chapter. It's a short chapter just about flattery. And it's so crazy how even in cautioning about flattery, the, like the narcissist in him seeps through because he says, yeah. essentially, be aware of those who flatter you. Because sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between them and people who are just telling the truth. Right. <laughs> so that it becomes more like this, this person is saying so many nice things about me that are real, but do they mean it? Yeah. <laughs> There's this quote from Jean Rostand or Jean Rostand. I don't know who that is, but they say, we find it easy to believe that praise is sincere. Why would anyone lie in telling us the truth? <laughs> All right, lesson three. Understanding evil makes you better at being good. So reading book two, The Prince by Machiavelli, first of all, there's this evil quality that Machiavelli has, and I wish there were a word for it, but I almost feel like <laughs> you could sum this book up in one line. If you want power, be evil in clever ways. <laughs> this whole book, Machiavelli is giving advice on how to get power and keep power. And weirdly, even though it's a book about evil government, it accidentally teaches you about good government. So look at the Constitution. And I know this can be fraught because I've met people who believe the Constitution was perfect. Hmm. And you can probably guess what those people look like. <laughs> they they would have been fine. <laughs> they would have been okay. <laughs> but with that said, when you read the Constitution and then you read The Prince you realize how many things in the Constitution are trying to solve the ideas he has in the prince. It's almost like the Constitution is an electric fence and the prince is a pack of velociraptors. <laughs> they were desperately trying to keep a lot of these terrible things outside. Now, again, obviously, the fence is always work in progress. And over time, people were like, uh, the fence should probably protect women too, right? <laughs> and communities of color and anyone not in a powdered wig. <laughs> but with that, with that huge caveat, if the prince is about how evil is the best way to get power, I think every good constitution is about making it just a little harder to use power for evil. Mm. So Machiavelli says, you know, to be powerful, don't be good, but always try to seem good. And the constitution's like, ah, I guess we need a free press for this son of a bee. <laughs> Machiavelli says, you know, it's much easier to dominate a place with a centralized power structure. And the Constitution's like, dang it, Niccolo, now we got to <laughs> spread power around as much as possible. <laughs> or he talks about making sure you're feared so no one betrays you because of your barbarous cruelty. <laughs> the Constitution's like, ah, we should probably give these people some rights. <laughs> so when it comes to governments, I don't believe there's any fence that protects everybody. And very often the fences are just built by slightly nicer velociraptors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I do think the strategies in the prints are important for us to know about because if we don't fear the raptors enough, we might turn off the fence. Uh -huh. <laughs> it is crazy how you can uh, learn uh, from the opposite <laughs> of things. There are several chapters in the beginning of the book where he talks about how to conquer countries that have had different types of governments. Yeah. And his warning about conquering, uh, maintaining power after you've conquered a city where the inhabitants are accustomed to freedom, mm -hmm. <laughs> as he puts it. 
<laughs> he says, you have to be careful because the watchword liberty is used in these countries. <laughs> <laughs> It's almost like instead of dating, these are his conquering red flags. <laughs> <laughs> then what he talks about cities like port cities that tended to be more of the, the melting pots of the time. He's saying, mm -hmm. you know, because of all the different cultures and stuff, uh, if you want to maintain control, you're going to have to live there. <laughs> That's how he puts it. <laughs> What's funny is port cities are still the melting pots. Oh, that is interesting. You ever think about that? How every major liberal city is by a huge body of water? Huh. Can you think of any that aren't? Seattle. <laughs> I wonder where its name came from. <laughs> Salt Lake. No. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say... No, but the other side of Seattle, where it's a forest, but then even over there, there are huge bodies of water, like Bill Gates' pools. <laughs> what about Portland? Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Long Island. No. Dang. <laughs> but seriously, I think the reality is water makes transport of goods so much easier mm. that that's just where every big city is. Mm -hmm. All right. Lesson four. You can be anything if you believe in yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that is the message of both books, isn't it? <laughs> I do wish, though, that we would stop telling people this, because I do think based on circumstances, you are limited to what you can achieve, but it's still a good thing. Like, I think it's helpful to recognize limitations and then make a decision based on reality. Like, if you don't grow up where it snows, you probably won't get a gold medal for the giant slalom. Wait, when is it slalom and when is it slegal? <laughs> And it's not to say that if you don't try hard enough, you can't achieve great things, right? Like, I had terrible stage fright compared to most of my counterparts starting out in stand-up comedy. It took me about five years to get past it, and some of my friends just never even had it. But what I am saying is that there will always be some things so far from your available resources that no amount of, quote, hard work is going to help. Like, I could never win a gold medal at the Long Thick Hair Olympics. <laughs> And I need to be okay with that. I'm not, but I need to be. <laughs> so a quote from Machiavelli says, A prince ought to have no other aim or thought, nor select anything else for his study than war and its rules and discipline. And <laughs> Fun. <laughs> he says, this is the sole art that belongs to him who rules. I love how you can just call it an art and not... Just, you know, killing people. <laughs> right. Think of it like red paint. <laughs> you need to know anatomy, kind of. <laughs> and it is of such force that it not only upholds those who are born princes, but it often enables men to rise from a private station to that rank. He's sort of sharing a life hack here, right? Where he's like, hey... Have you ever wanted to be king, but your dad wasn't a king? <laughs> it's the first self-help book, isn't it? Yeah. 
<laughs> I just think it's a lot like that quote from Ratatouille, where that food critic finally softens and says, not anyone can become a cook, but a cook can come from anywhere and kill the main cook and sit on their seat. <laughs> And I do love this quote from The Little Prince, where he says, A rock pile ceases to be a rock pile the moment a single man contemplates it, bearing within him the image of a cathedral. And I just mm. love that principle of imagining something and then putting it into action, especially if you're into cathedrals. <laughs> and it's also just like how when that prince grew up one day and saw a pile of paper and thought, I could make that into a book about being a cold, unstoppable monarch. <laughs> All right, random facts. I love, in book one, how he's clearly just writing jokes for himself. A bunch of these went over my head as a kid, because he just does not care if children get these. <laughs> he's talking about how if you live on a tiny planet, don't plant baobab trees because their roots get too big and break up the planet. And he says, I don't much like assuming the tone of a moralist, but the danger of baobabs is so little recognized that for once I am making an exception to my habitual reserve. <laughs> you may be asking, why are there no other drawings in this book as big as the drawing of the baobabs? There's a simple answer. I tried, but I couldn't manage it. When I drew the baobabs, I was inspired by a sense of urgency. <laughs> At another point, he says, he carefully raked out his active volcanoes. Of course, on our earth, we are much too small to rake out our volcanoes. That is why they cause us so much trouble. <laughs> And somewhere, Lava City is sadly nodding their head. <laughs> Finally, this part. She would cough terribly and pretend to be dying to avoid being laughed at, and I'd have to pretend to be nursing her. Otherwise, she'd really let herself die in order to humiliate me. It's <laughs> a quote from Machiavelli. Fear serves you by instilling a dread of punishment that never fails. Wow. Doesn't that sound like a parenting book from the 50s? <laughs> a father should have a stern hand, years of unresolved World War II and Great Depression trauma. <laughs> the family should panic when they hear his car rolling into the driveway. <laughs> I mean, I know we poke a lot of fun at like this era of parenting, I think the reality is humans are so complicated that whatever approach a society takes is going to have major trade-offs. And then the next generation is going to mock those trade-offs while being sort of blind to their own. <laughs> That's true. But I, I would say that in the balance of things, whatever we're doing now, I don't think was as bad as hurting little children with wooden objects. <laughs> I agree. My one devil's advocate thing is that now I think our goal is much more being happy. And I think their goal was at least more than ours focused on surviving. <laughs> oh, no, I agree. And I don't want my kids to be happy. I'm just saying, I yeah, think same. that. No, okay. All right. I'm glad <laughs> I was misinterpreting. No, but I, I do think um, going along with your devil's advocacy, I do think that major emotional damage is being done right now, especially with kids on phones and social media at such a sure. young age. Speaking of which, please subscribe to our podcast on your phone, no matter please how old subscribe. you are. 
We're one of the good parts about the internet. (laughs) (laughs) I wrestle with that with the Starlings series that we're writing because every middle grade and YA book is at least in some way about how you, the reader, are a special little snowflake and you're the most important. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is fun to write, but are there ways in which I'm doing damage here? (laughs) So Machiavelli, like quality of life never seems to be his concern for the people. (laughs) True. Doesn't mention it once. It seems like his idea of peace appears to just mean lack of rebellion. Like, yeah, that's his standard. If you could achieve that, you're a successful ruler. It's never measured from like that country's economy or trade or contribution to art or science or health. Right. The whole test is just your own people haven't beheaded you yet, then you're doing great. So, Kellen, today I wanted to do another round of Desert Island. This time for sports. So here's the scenario. You crash land on a desert island, and you have to pick seven athletes. For the rest of your life, you can only watch games that these athletes were involved in. Who do you pick? Um, well, <laughs> as a non-sports guy, my first thought is, can I name seven athletes? <laughs> you just pick the Von Trapp children. But I... <laughs> People that I would genuinely be excited to see, even though I was never really big into sports. Michael Jordan, of course, seeing him back on the court would be amazing. Didn't watch a lot of football growing up, but I do remember that Steve Young and Jerry Rice were like the the John and Paul of my limited football watching uh, as a youth. Um, I think Babe Ruth, just for the history of seeing the... Weird looking guy, just smash records. Um, <laughs> Jackie Robinson, and not just uh, for the history, but he was one of the most aggressive base runners of all time. Like, he, wow. one of the most iconic sports moments of all time was when he stole home during game one of a World Series, which is insane. Yeah. Stealing home is already insane. There are plenty of. Uh, incredible baseball players who have never Wells even Fargo does it. <laughs> Plenty of Hall of Fame baseball players who who never even tried it. It is nuts to try to steal the base that the pitcher is already facing and planning to throw the ball to. The pitcher can throw ninety to a hundred miles an hour. They are sixty feet away from home. The runner, <laughs> who can run at a human speed. <laughs> is 90 feet away so it is it is bonkers and for context if if you don't play baseball or have never watched it it's essentially like going for a half court shot in basketball when you don't even have to just (laughs) right trying it anyway I have to point out that for a podcast that has bagged on baseball a lot, you have picked two baseball players. I, <laughs> it was a lot of my childhood, and so I, I, I do, I do enjoy going to a, a baseball game or at least half of it, and then leaving. Wait, so where did all your jokes come from? Were you trying to fit in with me? <laughs> I, don't, I don't watch baseball. I watch. I do watch the World Series every year. Um, I I watch it. <laughs> 
during the five games out of 130 when there are actual stakes? <laughs> if we're doing confessions, I have to do confession time, which is a few months ago, there was a while where my Instagram algorithm was feeding me a lot of incredible baseball clips and I was really entertained <laughs> and it felt like I was having a crisis of faith. <laughs> I felt like, Javert after Jean Valjean forgives him and he's his whole world is coming apart. <laughs> Falling from grace. <laughs> I am reaching for the ball <laughs> and the ball is made of base. <laughs> I'll escape now while I can before anyone else sees. I said I hated baseball. Now I'm on my knees. <laughs> All right, what note does he hit? It's such a weird note. Oh, yeah. Now I'm on my knees. <laughs> I love that note that the composer was like, what note sounds like someone is falling to their death? <laughs> <laughs> and I think they're right. I think they would be slightly off key. <laughs> yeah. Did we get all seven of yours? That's five. So my last ones, uh, speaking speaking of Russell Crowe, my last two would be Maximus. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's so dark that you would choose a gladiator. <laughs> you, said, you said any athlete from history. Any athlete. <laughs> And then uh, one of those people who can shoot arrows while standing on their head. <laughs> I can't stop watching that. It's just crazy to me. Apparently, the South Korean archery team's training regimen is just insane. Hmm. Like, they will train in wind tunnels. Whoa. They will train with, like, these huge noise machines. Apparently, they do these exercises to build their mental stamina where they have to, like go through sewers or like stare at dead bodies in a crematorium. Oh. <laughs> I'm sort of fascinated by it, but I think their women's team, for instance, has won every gold medal in archery that they are capable of winning. And they're just standing there on that one, two, three days, just <laughs> staring into the void. Just the hollow eyed. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that archery instructor who's like, all right, today we're sneaking into North Korea for a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so my seven. Mm. Right off the bat for NBA, I'm picking Steve Kerr because then I get the Jordan Bulls, the Duncan Spurs, and the Curry Warriors. Oh. So he is just a gold mine. Number two, I pick Pat Riley because then I get the Magic Lakers and the LeBron Heat. Women's tennis, obviously Serena. Men's tennis, I love the big three, and so I, th I think I pick Nadal because he had the best rivalry with both Federer and Djokovic, mm. so I feel like that that maximizes my my big three matches. Gymnastics, Simone Biles. Oh, Football, yeah. I think the most fun player to watch is Mahomes. And then soccer, if I go men's soccer, probably Messi, although there's a Ronaldo fan in my life who will be furious at, about that. <laughs> and if I go women's soccer, probably Mallory Swanson because I think her career is going to be really good. And all baseball players drowned in the plane crash. <laughs> Sorry, I fell asleep when you said soccer, but I bet all of that was very funny. <laughs> I guess I should have picked Quidditch since all that uh, is just on the table. <laughs> no, Quidditch, 
Sounds like a terrible sport. Yeah. <laughs> Most of it is meaningless because uh-huh. the snitch is way overpowered. <laughs> and it's often a place where none of the spectators can even watch that part of the game. Yeah. And like there will be plot twists in the book where the game ends in like 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine how awful that is as a fan? <laughs> you just spent three hours parking and getting to your seat. <laughs> right. Like that's part of the draw that the game can end immediately or after days. That's terrible. <laughs> and also for that 30 second game, it could be that crazy stuff is happening on the field for 30 seconds. And then just up in the clouds, you hear someone go, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from The Little Prince and The Prince. One, expand the fourth wall. Two, creating a powerful impact doesn't mean you have to spell it out. Three, understanding evil makes you better at being good, a.k.a. we live in a fence surrounded by raptors. Four, you can be anything if you believe in yourself. And five, keep them poor and scattered. (laughs) 